0: Good morning. My name is Mara. I use she, her pronouns, and I'll be doing our reading for today. This morning's reading is from Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like those other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified, rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted.
1: Are you running up to turn me off? Thank you, as always, to Mara, our um, emergency everything. Um, Mara is one of the many people who uh, pour their heart and soul into this community um, and step up in miraculous ways. I am always so honored at how many different ways um, community shows up here. So thank you, Mara, for stepping in this morning. Um, If you were unsure about the radical inclusion of Zao, I want to be proof here with my I've got Bieber fever mug (laughs) that even I, a sinner, am welcome here. (laughs) So uh, my name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. Thank you so much for being with us this morning um, and for uh, playing with us, laughing with us, grieving with us, crying with us. It's already been quite a journey this morning at Zao, hasn't it? So um, we are finishing up a series called Discipline right now. Um, This is a series that we began in the new year as kind of an effort to say, hey, what would it look like if we brought some intention to our faith? What would it look like if we had the same kind of intentionality about the healing of our spirit as we do often about the healing of our bodies or, uh, or things like that, right? Not just saying, hey, it's a new year, let me get to the gym more often, but saying, hey, it's a new year, let me bring more intention and discipline to my relationship with God, to my own healing, to my spirituality. And so we've talked about any, a number of different disciplines, um, and they've been uh, variously fun and challenging but this last one is confession, confession and forgiveness, and my first confession I will make to you today is that I almost didn't do this one. This one's really tough, and in fact, uh, I, I was worried that when we put out the topic that, that I would be preaching to an empty room, because I was like, who wants to come here about confession? Anybody have any reservations when they heard that that was the topic? Okay, a couple of people. Some of you are brave, brave souls who are like, I am steel. I have no no fear of confession. Um, But a lot of us have some reservations about confession and what that means for us. And I think that for most of us, if we have really bad experiences of confession, or if we're worried that a conversation about confession is going to make us feel bad, it's because we've been told over and over again that we are just these depraved sinners, right? Some traditions will talk about, literally they'll talk about total depravity, saying like, to your core, you are bad. That is not our tradition. There are many reasons, and we'll talk about them later, that it is complicated to be a part of the United Methodist Church, but one of the beautiful things about this tradition, one of the reasons that we are located here in theological history is because we um, believe in this Wesleyan tradition that actually, ultimately, people are good. That God made us and imbued us with this inherent goodness that pours out of us. This goodness that is of God, this grace that comes before we can do anything about it. And actually, instead of um, some other traditions that say, at your core you are bad and so you've got to get away from that and try and take on the goodness of Christ to cover up your badness, that's not what we teach here. Wesley talked sometimes about how um, redemption and sanctification being made holy was like looking in a mirror that had become dirty and wiping away the dirt and dust and all the things that had covered it to truly see oneself. That at your core, you are good and holy and beloved. And confession is one of those disciplines that helps us to wipe away all of that grime and muck and suffering And and failure and hurt that keeps us from seeing and being our true selves. So I want to ground this conversation about discussion in an unequivocal statement that you are good, you are holy, you are at your core righteous and divine and beautiful. And the practice of confession is, uh, is to enable that, is to allow you to connect most deeply with that. It's not to expose the worst parts of you and leave you to feel bad about it. And that's what some of us have experienced in confession. Because uh, the, the other side of that, this sense that uh, we are good, can sometimes tip into a pressure to be perfect. And and those traditions that talk about total depravity, for instance, um, I empathize with them. I disagree, but I empathize because there's something inherent in that conversation that actually is very comforting, which says, no matter how much you screw up, it's cool. No matter how much you screw up, that's probably going to happen and it's beyond your control anyway, so you can actually stop worrying so hard about it. And so we want to hold on to that piece of it that says, you are good, and also, you are flawed. Because if we say, oh, you are all bad, then that leaves us feeling like we're all bad, unable to connect to the goodness that made us who we are in God's image. But if we say we are only good, then that leaves us entirely without permission to make mistakes. So again, confession is is getting to that core of who we are, this inner perfection that is also characterized by endless mistake, and failure, and hurt, and brokenness. And so confession is a way to claim all parts of ourselves, to be honest with ourselves and God about who we are, and to love ourselves fully. That's why it wasn't just called confession, it was called confess and be forgiven. Because no confession is complete without absolution, without forgiveness, without that release of of the things that we carry into our time of confession. So there's always this tension that you are fundamentally holy and good and that you are fundamentally geared towards making mistakes and messing up. And scripture is really clear on this in ways that I love. Um, Paul gets a bad rap sometimes. Sometimes it's earned, sometimes it's not. Um, But in in Paul's letter to the Romans, this is an early church um, that's just trying to figure themselves out in the midst of empire. (laughs) Paul says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now I don't believe that Paul is tipping into this this path that the church has taken that says therefore you suck I think Paul is saying, you know, because the broader context of all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God is that we all deserve God's love the same amount and that there is no distinction or differentiation, that no mistake is greater than another, that we all make mistakes. That's written into the code, so we might as well move on from that a little bit instead of getting so hung up on it. And that doesn't mean that, that Paul doesn't self-examine. My other favorite passage of Paul's in Romans is when he goes on this little, you know, he's, he's like, got it all together. He's like, this is my point. This is my point. This is my point. And then he kind of drifts into this weird little tangential loop where he's like, so about sin and about failure, Part of the problem is, like, I know what I need to do, but then I don't do what I need to do, and then I know what I shouldn't do, and I do the very thing I don't want to do, and I don't know why I do the thing that I don't want to do. I should do the thing I want to do. And it's this beautifully human moment of pause. You'll hear me talk about it repeatedly, because we all have some sense of that internal struggle, that, like, why am I like this, right? And, and part of the reason we have that why am I like this is because when we sin... We're actually straying from the core of who we are. So sin can sometimes be um, characterized as like a, a list of rules that we're breaking. Right? Has anybody ever had that kind of experience of sin? Sin is like the, you know, the signs above the wherever, whatever institution is like zero fun. It's like no skateboarding, no loitering, no no fun of any kind, right? That's what people think of when they think of sin. They're just like a big list of, of no this. That is not um, the way that I conceptualize sin. And I want to take you through a little bit of the history of the conversation about sin so that you can make choices for yourself about how to think about sin. Sin, um, the, the, the word that's used for sin, actually um, most literally could mean like missing the mark, like shooting an arrow and just missing your target, um, or straying from a path. So sin is about having an intention and missing it. Sin is about having a purpose and straying from it. It's not this list of offenses. And actually, that comes, this this idea of sin and repentance as like rule-breaking and groveling, doesn't come from the early church. It comes from um, part of our uh, very twisted history as a church um, in Western Europe. So when you think about um, even a lot of the language that we still use for God, um, like the word Lord. Lord, if it's not in like a religious context, means something very specific, right? It's a feudal term for somebody who lords over other people. And it wasn't something holy, you know, it it got ascribed to God in a holy way and to say God is Lord over me. But that that um, That beautiful human tendency towards metaphor can also lead us astray by assigning too many um, aspects of that metaphor to God. And so people began to think about God not only as the Lord who they served, to say, oh, my loyalty is to you, but they started to adopt the relationship they had to human lords in terms of honor and, and fidelity in this human sense. So, if you did something bad, if you, um, if you broke the rules of your Lord in a human sense, the only way to repair that damage, because you ha- the damage done was actually not to relationship, not to healing, not to goodness, the damage done was that you had sort of besmirched your Lord's name, right? Any of this sound a little bit familiar in religious language? That you had brought shame on your Lord, who was supposed to be sovereign, And so if you did something out out of line with your Lord, then you needed to grovel and lower yourself, um, make some sort of sacrifice to prove to the world that you were beneath your Lord and and to make up for your Lord's lost pride. So that sounds super um, human, but it doesn't sound very divine that kind of relationship that's based in pride and, um, and sort of like evening the playing fields and you hurt me, so you better hurt yourself more so that everyone knows the pecking order, right? And so any of those ideas, any of that feudal relationship that got imported into um, our concept of God, our loving God, we should know where that comes from, that that comes from feudal Europe. That doesn't necessarily come from Jesus. And so this concept of like uh, besmirching our Lord's honor and having to make up for it by um, by basically humiliating ourselves, that's actually pretty distant from my own concept of sin, um, my own concept of com- confession and repentance. So I want to introduce you to another part of the tradition, um, which is Eastern theology. So uh, if you don't know the broad church history, tree, all the splits that happened early, early on in the beginning, like Three, three, four hundred years into the church being a church, there was a major conflict that split folks East and West. And West became the Roman Catholic Church, um, but East became Eastern Orthodox. And here in the States, we tend to be more familiar with Roman Catholic theology and teaching than we do with Eastern Orthodox teaching. But these early Eastern theologians had a very different uh, language and concept for sin. Not only for sin, but also for holiness. So if we tend to think of holiness as purity, holiness as ability to follow all of those rules, to never have done any of those don'ts, then then that's kind of that Western idea. But the Eastern idea of holiness was actually related to wholeness, being complete, being made whole. And so holiness as wholeness has a very different relationship then to sin. Sin, then, is a fracturing of a whole. Sin is anything that grooves into a whole and creates distance from oneself. Sin is, sin is this fracturing, this pulling apart. Sin is a brokenness in something that should be united. And so you think about that in yourself. We all need healing. And if healing and wholeness and holiness are all tied up in one another, then sin isn't a violation of some rules that besmirch some, some other person's honor. Sin is actually anything that separates us from ourselves just a little bit, that hurts us on the inside. And if you think about wholeness as being beyond the individual, but to all of creation, which we do teach here, that God is reconciling all things to God's self, that wholeness is about the redemption and reconciliation of the entire universe, the entire cosmos created by God then sin is anything that pulls us apart from one another, that puts distance between us, that that fractures the whole of this community that God is drawing together over and over again. Sin is fracturing, sin is brokenness, and sin hurts. It doesn't always hurt much right away, right? You think of things that are like a little bit toxic to you and they build up, right? A little bit of toxin may not feel bad, you know those first 2 3 drinks might even feel great but you keep going and you can see that build up effect it has on you and it can kill you right so if you if you broaden to the body of Christ if you broaden into the body of the cosmos you can think of probably a pretty long list really quickly of the things that you see in the world among individuals, among systems, communities, societies that are causing these little breaks, these fractures, these things that are pushing us from one another, that are hurting us. Sin is painful. Sin is not, oh, you told me not to do it and I did it anyway and you know what, it was kind of fun, so I'd rather <laughs> sin in hell than be bored in heaven, right? That's, that's a very um, societal conception of sin. I don't think that that's very biblical. Sin isn't fun at least it isn't fun when it, when it works itself over our bodies, our, our communities. Sin is actually really painful and really isolating. And so each of our sins is different, and no one else can actually come up with this hard and fast rules, li- this list of do's and don'ts. We um, are drawn towards healing. That's why we're here. We are a community in search of healing and wholeness, reconciliation. And so anything that we do that, uh, that fractures that is sin. These are the things that, uh, that we need to confess. These are the things that we're coming with. Not, hey God, I broke the rules. I'm so sorry. But hey God, I'm hurting. Or hey God, I think I hurt someone. Because this is the really awful thing about sin is that it doesn't just hurt us, right? It alienates us from ourselves, but also from others and from God and from the whole of creation. That's the flip side of the beauty of all of our interdependence and interconnectedness, that if one part of the body hurts, it ripples out and hurts all parts. So if you think, oh, I've hurt someone, then really, when you think about it, you're hurting someone in a way that's separating you from them, that's hurting the both of you. And it's really tricky, right, because like we can we can handle ourselves, we can come with ourselves and try and heal, but one of the tensions we will always have as an interconnected, interdependent creation is that we actually need to count on one another to do it as well. Confession is something that we need to do for ourselves for our healing, It's also something that we need from one another. That if we can't confess, we can't be reconciled. If we can't own up to um, the things that are, are pulling us apart, we can never build those bridges back. And so, when we stray from those paths, when we miss the mark, when we sin, we're actually straying from ourselves. We're going against the thing that makes us feel whole. When we do something hurtful, it's not just our individual wholeness, but it's all of wholeness that is at stake. And the beauty of interconnectedness becomes this other responsibility then that we have to say, oh wow, my, my actions impact other people. So how do we heal from that? How do we heal these wounds, these fractures that are not only inside us, but between us How do we heal the fractures that have formed elsewise and come back to double back on us and hurt us, even though we had nothing to do with those original breaks? One of the tools that God has given us for this is confession. We talk about authenticity at Zao a lot. Um, One of the things that people really um, tell me over and over that they love about you all, that they love about this community, is that they feel they can be fully themselves. Confession as a discipline embodies that giving explicit permission to bring our shame and our guilt, our self-inflicted wounds, the wounds we've caused other people, to bring those to the light, bring those to God, so that we can release them and heal them. Confession is not designed to make you feel like crap, I promise. It's actually here to set you free. Because how can we ever feel released? How can we ever um, heal these broken parts of us if we don't look at them? If we don't see them, acknowledge them, grieve them, and try to do do differently, try to heal, try to do better. The biggest barrier that I see to confession is shame. We are so worried that they're right, that ultimately, in the end, we are bad. We are so worried that we don't want to acknowledge the ways that we have been contrary to our good nature. We're worried they're right, And shame has um, a really uh, different-looking mask it wears sometimes, which is pride. We say, I've done nothing wrong, because deep down we are truly worried that we have done something wrong and that we should be ashamed of ourselves. So Jesus tells a story to this group of people who is in that latter camp, People who are so sure of their own righteousness that they have denied that they could do anything wrong. They've said, oh, those people, those are the ones that mess up. But my righteousness I can count on. And this, right, this self-righteousness, this pride, is actually keeping them from wholeness. It's one of the times, you know, I love seeing Jesus call people to task. It's real fun. And he's, he's definitely doing that here. But to me, this is one of the clearest times when he's doing it actually out of compassion. I think generally Jesus does everything out of compassion. It's just easier for me to see that in this one. But he's doing this out of compassion, not to say, hey, prideful people, I'm going to knock you down a peg. But he's actually pointing out to them that, that by relying primarily on their own righteousness, they are hiding not only from the shame that they do possess, but also that they're setting themselves up for failure because they can't actually be perfect. And they're trying to hold themselves to a standard that they will never attain and never achieve, and so they will never be able to address those shortcomings and those failures, because they'll say, well, at least I did all of these things. I did it right. And that sets them up to never actually be fully healed. They are trying to heal on their own. They're trying to disconnect themselves from the whole. Ironically, a sin in and of itself, right? Disconnect themselves from the whole and say, I can hold myself up. When the invitation of confession is to say, no, actually I can't always. Let me look at the ways that I can't always hold myself up. Let me look at the ways that I fail myself and others. Let me grieve that. And let me lean on the community and lean on my God to heal and to do better. Because it's a lot of pressure if we try and do it on our own. So this story that uh, Jesus tells one of the morals of it, I will I will tell you even before we unpack this story, but one of the things that I want you to keep in mind is that Jesus is showing that it is better to depend on God and one another and confess our shortcomings than to aim for perfection that we will never achieve and in the process isolate ourselves and actually grow our shame rather than releasing it and transforming it. So, there are two main characters in the story that Jesus tells, um, a Pharisee and a tax collector. And I want to define our terms here, um, because I know that not everybody knows what those things mean. Um, We don't have uh, either of those roles in the same way anymore. So um, Pharisees, Pharisees are are common characters in um, the Bible, um, and they are the goodies. So, like, sometimes um, if you've been around church, you'll hear Pharisees getting, like, a totally, like, bad reputation. Like, ooh, Pharisees, ooh. And part of that is because the Pharisees and Jesus are always like this. But the the weird thing about that, and the thing that would have been shocking to Jesus' original audience, is that uh, the Pharisees are the good guys. The Pharisees are the ones who, like, know the law to the letter and follow it completely. That's their whole job. And so, like, if you want to unpack that, if you want to, like dissect that psychologically. I think they have taken their shame and their fear and anxiety and turned it into, like, making a living out of telling people how to be right and how to avoid their shame. But if you just want to look at it at surface value, you see a bunch of people who are trying to be good, who are just trying to do good. And you know what? They do really good a lot of the time. So much so that the entire community has surrounded them and said, teach me how to be good. And they're like, gladly. (laughs) So that's our Pharisee. The Pharisee literally, like, legitimately does do the right thing. So when in this story the Pharisee is like, oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like that other person who does this, 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 and this. The Pharisee's not lying. It's not hypocritical. The Pharisee's not doing those things. I do this, 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 and this. They're probably telling the truth. So we should take the Pharisee at their word that they are doing right things. Um, So that's the Pharisee. The tax collector. Now... I think sometimes the, the, the deep ickiness of tax collector gets lost on us because it's a different role than you know, employees of the IRS in our context. Tax collectors were collaborators. Tax collectors were traitors. Tax collectors were predators. Tax collectors in Jesus' day were Jewish people who had collaborated with the Roman Empire, who was occupying and exploiting the Jewish people. And not only were uh, the tax collectors extracting taxes from the Jewish people to fund and fuel and support the Roman Empire who was dominating and oppressing them, but tax collectors were also known for skimming off the top and asking for more than even the Roman Empire was so that they could line their own pockets. One um, One of the modern day analogies that I really like for tax collectors is payday lenders. Are you all familiar with payday lending? It's a a type of business that crops up in low-income neighborhoods where people are often in bad situations and need fast cash, so they go to payday lenders. And I actually, I should look up um, the stats in Wisconsin, but I know in Illinois for a while, it was legal for a payday lender to charge up to 800% interest. And so these are basically legal loan sharks. So that's the kind of character we're talking about. This isn't just like, oh, the Pharisee is the goody-two-shoes and the tax collector is the rule-breaker. The Pharisee legitimately had made a living out of trying to do right, and the tax collector had chosen publicly to align themselves with empire and theft uh, from God's people and from the poor. So these are our characters, and they have gone to worship. They've gone to this public prayer, so they're, they're praying um, together, uh, and so they're probably, it's something like this, right? Like they're coming into a public space of worship. Now first we hear from the Pharisee who, um, who stands and sort of testifies about himself in public worship. It says that he prays to himself, and the, the phrasing here is a little, like, you can read into it, right? So either he's just kind of like quietly praying to himself, or it might be he's praying to himself, Right? He's really addressing himself. He's not really oriented towards God. But he's praying to himself, and he says, God, I'm so glad that I'm not like these other people. And one of the the main features of his prayer is that he actually asks nothing of God. Because the implication is he thinks he needs nothing from God. And mixed in with that is a contempt for these other people who break the law. He does a lot of comparing himself to others. That's the main feature of his prayer. He compares himself to other people. He's like, I am better than them. Thank God I'm better than them. End of prayer, right? Nothing Nothing to ask for, nothing to need. The tax collector stands at a distance, doesn't even want to be associated with the worshiping body. And instead of publicly being in this place of being like, I am here to pray, the text collector is like in the back, just racked with grief. He's beating his breast, which is something that um, wasn't normally done in that context. And it's something that people do out of this intense grief. And this isn't a performance. He's not comparing himself to anything. In fact, he says a lot fewer words than the Pharisee does. He just says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He's overwhelmed by feeling. He's not comparing himself to other people. He's not even really in the mix of the worship. He's coming and laying himself bare before God, just an honest self-reflection and a, a plea for help. One of the um, commentaries I was reading about this talks about how these are two very different postures that you can bring to worship. This, this posture of, um, of performance versus this honest self-revelation. And we can get caught up in this because we can actually turn that latter one into a performance too. Anybody seen that happen? Maybe not at church, but, but just in your life when somebody's like a little overly, like, I'm the worst, right? That, so this commentary called that a posture of humility. And it says, Jesus does not admonish us to adopt a humble posture rather than a proud one, but to give up all posturing. Give up your posturing. Confession is about honesty. Confession is about authenticity. Confession is about saying, this is what I got, man, and some of it sucks. And so in this story, we have somebody who is coming forward, who is doing all of the right things and just not being honest with himself, just not acknowledging the shame he does carry, just not acknowledging that no matter how well he does, there are always these little things that are nagging at him that he can't quite get right. And then you've got this other person who is messing up mightily on a regular basis, has not figured it out, is clearly not, like, positioning himself to get a new career, but is there before God, saying, like, God, this is where I'm at. And Jesus says, that one, that one got what he needed with God. That one was right with God in that moment, was honest, was connected. Because again, back to that interconnectedness, back to that sin of separation, when we are holding on to our our fractures, our brokenness, when we are holding on to things like they are secrets with God, even though we know God knows, God knows all the things. Confession isn't for God. Confession's for you. God knows the little mistake that Pharisee made that morning weighing his spices. God knows all the things that that tax collector did. The confession isn't for God, it's for them. It's for you, to lay it bare, and to be received not with the judgment and shame that circulates in yourself or in the world, but with the love, forgiveness, compassion of God. To say, hey, I see you, I saw that, I know it hurts. I love you. Let's heal it. Confession is about saying, I need your help. I've strayed too far. I'm ashamed and weak. I want to go back, and I don't know how. And it's difficult, but it's not meant to make you feel bad. It's meant to set you free. It's meant to set you free from that pretending, from that attempt to be perfect. It's meant to set you free from your reliance on your own self-righteousness because that's not going to last forever. And I will tell you right now, if you're looking at that story and saying, oh, I am such a Pharisee, or oh, I am such a tax collector, you're right and you're wrong because we all have both. We all have both. The Pharisee in his heart has that not only that shame of the tax collector, but also that capacity to lay it bare before God. And that tax collector is having a good day of confession. And who knows what other moments throughout the day he's actually girding himself up and saying, well, at least I'm not like that self-righteous, hypocritical Pharisee. There's a story about this passage in the Bible um, that like a Sunday school teacher is like telling this story and then ends with a prayer, you know, thank God, thank you so much that we have your scriptures and we have your teachings, that we are not like that Pharisee. We are like that tax collector. Whoops. (laughs) So we get into that loop, right? And I think sometimes in our culture, especially um, if you have identities of oppression, especially if you've been on the receiving end of some pompous Pharisee who has some power, It is easy for us to say like, yeah, I'm a tax collector and I can admit it and at least I'm not like those people. And then we're back in that same loop, right? So this isn't describing one type of person and another type of person. This is describing something that wars within us. The moments that we allow ourselves to be laid bare and to see the things that we don't want to look at so that they can be healed and transformed. And the defenses that we have, whatever form they take, that says at least I'm not like that and tries to rely on our own self-righteousness to justify ourselves instead of knowing that we're already justified in our God who loves us and that love is there no matter what we do. And it's a lot easier to receive it, to embrace it, when we can admit that we need it. One of the most important confessions I ever made um, was telling my family that I was a heroin addict. And it was awful. The reason I hadn't told anybody because that's not something that you tell. That's something that you keep secret. I was just trying to get by. I was just trying to survive. I was 18 and suicidally depressed and using IV heroin every day. And I got to a point where I was like, oh, I'm going to die. I need to tell someone because I need some help. The brokenness that had characterized my life, that sin, that sin of my heroin addiction, was something that I actually was holding on to like a secret. And I needed to lay it bare so that I could get some help. And so I came home to my family and I confessed, I need help. This is actually not who I am or who I need to be. And it's gonna kill me. And I need your help because I can't get out of this alone and I need somebody to know the way that I'm suffering, and I need somebody to know the way that I'm hurting, and I need somebody to know how bad I feel the shame and guilt I carry for the way that I've hurt people in this. And what's so strange and kind of funny about that story is that when I told, when I said, hey, this is is my shame, I still held on to certain pieces of it. My family had a lot of questions, How long have you been using? Over a year. Have you been using other drugs than heroin? Yes. Do you smoke cigarettes? No. Which is a really weird thing not to cop up to, right? And I'm not 100% sure why I did hold on to that piece. If I had to guess, it was because, in a weird way, I was more ashamed of that. Because my parents didn't talk to me a whole lot growing up about not doing IV heroin. I think that was kind of <laughs> assumed. But they did say, don't smoke, it hurts you. And, and, and I was doing something that they had told me they didn't want me to do, and I knew that they had told me for my own well-being. And in fact, uh, I remember when I, I came home one day from like a fourth grade dare assembly, And, you know, my dad, every once in a while, would smoke a cigar with his friends. And I came home and was like, Dad, I'm really worried about you. (laughs) I don't want you to get lung cancer. Please stop smoking. And he did. And so it actually, in a different way, felt like a bigger violation for me to have started smoking as an adolescent. So I held on to that. I held on to that shame. And and this is the the really bizarre thing about confession, right? It's us. It's our problem that we're holding on to. God, like I said, God doesn't need us to fess up. God knows what we've been up to. You know, my parents probably knew I was smoking. And even if they didn't, I'm sure they were more concerned about the heroin. (laughs) (sighs) But I felt shame about those cigarettes. And that kept me from being fully honest with them. It kept me from saying, hey, I feel like I really messed up. And so they couldn't say, hey, it's okay. We love you. We're going to get better together. We'll heal together. And so when we hold on to things and refuse to bring them to confession, we're holding on to bits and pieces of our shame and basically saying, I am removing myself from forgiveness. I'm removing myself from help. And so the goal of healing, that goal of reconciliation, can only be achieved when we are fully authentic, fully honest, when we confess, lay ourselves bare. I was really lucky that I had parents who were loving and forgiving. One of the things that we worry about is that we don't always know if the people that we confess to will receive us with love. But the beauty of God is that God has made us promises on that front. That God will always receive our confession with love, with absolute love. That God already knows that God is saying, hey, just get it out. Give it to me. And actually, the the most beautiful thing about Christian confession in our tradition, what we believe, is that it's not just like a psychological unburdening. It's not you just getting something off of your chest. If that were the case, you know, write it on your live journal. But, like, this is something else. God came down to earth. God became a human being, not only to take on our humanity in a, in a fun, uh, exciting way, but to take on the, the grit and, and muck and mire of our humanity, which includes our sin and pain and brokenness. God took that on and took it to the cross and died with it and rose. God transforms that sin and those mechanisms of death into life, into new life, into healing and to restoration. And so actually when we take our confessions to God, we believe that, that Christ takes them onto his own self, buries them in the dirt with the dead, and rises new. God can transform those pieces of you that you are so ashamed of that you can't even own up to. And if we can work on just breaking that open a little bit before God, trusting that we'll receive it, that God will receive it with love, then we are also trusting that God will transform it into life and into healing to make us whole as individuals and as a world. This is really hard to do, that trust. And so I want to invite you, if you are in a place where you're like, I just, I can't, I'm not there yet, then one of the ways that you can practice confession is to take that to confession and confess, say, God, I don't think I trust you yet. And it's keeping me from being honest with you. It's shining a light on one of those pieces of brokenness, that distance we feel. Confess to that. God, I'm struggling with this. Please forgive me. Make me whole. Allow me to put my trust in your love. So we're going to practice together, because like all of these disciplines, we didn't make this up. Luckily, the church has been doing it for millennia, um, and so there are, um, there are pre-written practices that other people have done to lead the way. So we are going to participate in, um, in, a, in a tradition of the church coming to God as a communi- community to confess the, the sins of our heart, the brokenness, the pieces of our shame. You don't have to say any of those things out loud to one another, but I'm going to ask you, if you're feeling up to it, to read with me some of the things on the screen, to confess in general, and then there will be a time of silence where you can, in the quiet of your own heart, offer up to God whatever it is that you need to lay bare. So, Sam, you could throw that up on the screen. Um, Ooh, it's a little hard to tell what is bolded and what it's not. Um, I'm going to read the parts that are not bolded, um, and then we will all read the parts that are in bold. Will you join me in this practice of confession? Blessed be the Holy Trinity, one God who forgives all our sin, whose mercy endures forever. Amen. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires are known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit, that we may perfectly love you, and worthily magnify your holy name, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, God promises to heal us and forgive us. Let us confess our sin in the presence of God and of one another. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us. For self-centered living and for failing to walk with humility and gentleness, holy, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us. For longing to have what is not ours and for hearts that are not at rest with ourselves, holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us for misuse of human relationships, and for unwillingness to see the image of God in others. Holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us. For jealousies that divide families and nations, for rivalries that create strife and warfare, holy God, holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us. For reluctance in sharing the gifts of God, And for carelessness with the fruits of creation holy god holy and mighty holy and immortal have mercy on us for hurtful words that condemn and for angry deeds that harm holy god holy and mighty holy and immortal have mercy on us for idleness in witnessing to jesus christ and for squandering the gifts of love and grace holy god holy and mighty, holy and immortal, have mercy on us. God, we offer up to you these confessions, these confessions we have said corporately in the tradition of so many who have come before us, and now in this silence, we offer up to you the confessions of our own hearts. For about a minute, we will sit and pray in the silence of our hearts. Now comes the best part, the part that we are promised, the part that I am gifted to offer you not as a pastor but as a person in the body of Christ because all are given the power to forgive in the name of Jesus. In the mercy of the Almighty God, Jesus Christ was given to die for us and for his sake God forgives us all our sins. Through the Holy Spirit, God cleanses us and gives us the power to proclaim the mighty acts of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. As a called and ordained minister of the Church of Christ and by his authority, I therefore declare you, to you, the entire forgiveness of your sins. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven, Almighty God strengthen you in all goodness and bring you into everlasting life. Amen.
0: All right, and um, if you would again just stand with us either in body or in spirit as we continue to sing. Um, and this song is, is new to Zhao, um, and it's it's kind of about like who we are as people and, and a confession of who we are